Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. In the history of the world, there have appeared a few rulers here and there that have stood out among the multitude. Um, emperors and kings whose reputation has lasted beyond their years of rule. Uh, some of them have, may be famous for their unmatched cruelty, maybe for their military prowess or for their diplomatic skills. Others are famous for other reasons entirely. Let's face it, most of the rulers of history aren't necessarily known for their tolerance or openness and intellectual curiosity. I can think of only a few off the top of my head, but one of those great rulers of history is certainly the Mughal Emperor Akbar, sometimes also known as Akbar the Great, which actually means something like Great the Great, so maybe we should just stop using that name. In any case, Akbar is remembered for being perhaps the most successful and powerful emperor of the whole Mughal Empire, an emperor that expanded the empire's borders and showed very impressive skills both in military and, and diplomatic uh, fields. But why, you ask, are we talking about a political leader on a channel about religion? Well, that is because Akbar is not only famous for the reasons already mentioned, but also for his very fascinating religious policies and approaches. Not only did he show an unusual level of tolerance and openness towards different religious groups within the regions that he ruled, but he was also intellectually and spiritually 
engaged and interested himself. He would converse with uh, scholars from different religions and even instigated a religious movement of his own, which he called the Deen Ilahi, or the Divine Religion. Akbar is a very famous ruler, but also one that is often misrepresented both by his enemies and by his fans. So today let's dive into the world of Mughal India in the 16th and 17th century and talk about one of the most fascinating world leaders in history. Jalal ad-Din Akbar was the third official emperor of the great Mughal Empire, one of the three often so-called great gunpowder empires of the early modern period. And definitely the emperor who set the bar and established the dynasty as the mighty force that it would become under his leadership and afterwards. Now the Mughal Empire, with its expansion, and especially under and after the rule of Akbar in particular, became a significant empire, one of the greatest empires in the history of the Indian subcontinent. It stood as one of the three major empires of the Islamic world at the time, the Ottomans, uh, which ruled most of the Middle East uh, from Istanbul in modern Turkey, uh, and also the Safavids in modern-day Iran, and lastly then there was the Mughals in what is today India and Pakistan, so the Indian subcontinent. And the Mughals would rule for a long time, even after the British occupation, the Mughal emperors still sat on the throne, even if they didn't have the same amount of power, all the way up to the 19th century. But the height of their power arguably was during and around, especially a bit after, the time of Akbar and his immediate successors. Akbar is certainly the most famous of the Mughal emperors, and arguably the most important. He was born in 1542 to Humayun, the second Mughal emperor, and a Shiite mother, poetically foreshadowing his later life of religious diversity. After he himself became emperor in 1556, Akbar very quickly showed himself to be a more than able leader. He led many military campaigns that extended the borders of the Mughal Empire to encompass what is most of India, basically. He established his capital in Agra and later in Lahore, rather than ruling remotely from Afghanistan, as his predecessors had done. And he also established many administrative systems that helped expand wealth of the region significantly. One interesting aspect of Akbar's life is that from his earliest years and well, for the rest of his life, he seems to have been entirely illiterate. There are stories of how many teachers in his youth would try to teach him to read and write, but in vain. There was no way that they could teach him, which has led many scholars today to argue that he may have been dyslectic. The Christian Jesuit Montserrat, who used to attend Akbar's court, wrote that he was, quote, entirely unable to read or write. Something that, of course, wasn't uncommon for people in general at that time, but certainly so for the emperors of the Mughal dynasty. But despite this illiteracy, Akbar was an incredibly inquisitive individual who valued knowledge, science, and spiritual insight, as we will see. He didn't let this inability stop him from being immensely interested in all kinds of different knowledge. Akbar was, throughout his life, a great enjoyer of sports and different outdoor activities. One of his favorite pastimes was to hunt, something that many stories tell us about. The Mughals were Muslims, and Akbar was a Muslim who, at least in the first decades of his life, a point we will return to, took his religion very seriously. He performed all the obligatory rituals and prayers, and conceived of himself as the secular leader and champion of Sunni Islam. He was not only known as the Shah'an Shah, the King of Kings, but also referred to himself as the Amir al-Mu'minin, the commander of the faithful and as the Caliph of Islam, something that greatly concerned the Ottoman sultans in the West. 
But it certainly wasn't an entirely unfounded claim. At the height of his power, Akbar ruled an enormous population of Muslims and non-Muslims, probably the largest Muslim population of all the Islamic empires at that time. And yet, in spite of this, descriptions of Akbar and his life paints the picture of a relatively modest and contemplative man concerned with spiritual matters and the well-being of those he ruled over. Now, the majority of biographical material about Akbar comes from the accounts of his grand vizier, Abul Fazl ibn Mubarak, and his works called Akbar Nama and Aini Akbari. Of course, then, Abul Fazl paints Akbar, his boss, in the most favorable light, which should be kept in mind. We also have accounts by writers like Al-Badayuni and Ahmed Sirhindi, both of whom were Akbar's enemies and so are on the other side of the spectrum and should be approached carefully for the same reasons. In any case, the picture that emerges of Akbar is a fascinating and intriguing one, no matter which side you are on. The rule of Akbar was one in which the Mughals were trying to sort of shake off some of their cultural baggage or cultural background. Now, the Mughals originally came from what is today referred to as Persia, uh, and they spoke Persian in court, etc. But the Mughals ultimately descended from the Mongols, from people like the Timur and so on, uh, which is, of course, suggested by the name Mughals. As such, they were kind of the successors to some of the great Islamicized Mongol leaders of earlier centuries, like what I mentioned, Timur or Tamerlane, uh, who had ruled Persia for a very long time previously. And while Akbar will often, of course, emphasize this cultural heritage and be proud of it, we also see him trying to modify or root out some practices that were common among the post-nomadic Mongols. This included gatherings of soldiers where excessive drinking of alcohol took place, for example. It also included the general Mongol ways of warfare, which was, according to most estimates, quite brutal and unforgiving. Al-Badayuni writes that, quote, It was the code of Genghis Khan to massacre or make slaves of all the inhabitants of a conquered region, to destroy utterly many towns and villages and sweep everything clean and clear, to value God's creation as if it were but radishes, cucumbers, and leeks. Instead, in order to conform more to Islamic law and customs of war, Akbar forbade things like indiscriminate killings of non-combatants and the free-taking and selling of slaves. He also seems to have inaugurated a very strict court etiquette, which even to his contemporaries seemed quite extreme. The historian Andre Wink writes, quote, here, the allegory of taming the Mongol beasts translates into an attempt to turn a loose, multi-ethnic and religiously heterogeneous assemblage of post-nomadic military retainers into a disciplined service nobility, while establishing a rigid court etiquette as a new force of counterinsurgency. This task was never easy, since Akbar, like many other rulers, could not afford to antagonize his nobles. It had to be done by a judicious mixture of force and persuasion, just like the taming of elephants, as Abul Fazl says. These aspects of Akbar are important to keep in mind, I think. They are important in order for us to nuance our understanding of his later religious policies, for example, and also in order to counteract some of the attacks by his enemies, who often wanted to portray him or often paint him as an irreligious liberal leader whose relationship to Islam was shaky at best and completely non-existent at worst. But the historical record shows that this is simply not true. Akbar, in fact, comes across as an unusually pious and moderate leader and emperor in this context. 
Akbar was not only a devout Muslim, but also a great admirer of the Sufi saints. Indeed, Sufism at this time was basically synonymous with Islam, especially in this region. Um, and most Muslims at this time were in some way connected to one of the different Sufi tariqas, the different Sufi orders. Akbar seems to have been particularly devoted to the Shishti order of Sufis, which was one of the major Sufi orders in this region in the Indian subcontinent at that time. He would perform various ziyaras, visits or minor pilgrimages to the shrines of some of the great Shishti masters, like Mu'inuddin Shishti in Ajmer and Nizamuddin Awliya in Delhi. Both of these masters and the Shishti order in general has indeed been characterized as a relatively tolerant and open one, treating with respect people of different religions, which is also what attracted many from the local population to their teachings and helped them to convert eventually. So when we look at Akbar as a Muslim, we should consider the fact that it was this kind of Islam that he was a particular adherent to, the Shishti order of Sufism, something that I think is related to his own religious attitudes. I think it's more beneficial to recognize that the open and inclusive attitude that he would hold later in life shouldn't just automatically be seen as a result of a waning commitment to Islam or as the result of outside influence, but rather that these kinds of ideas might have come from sincere devotion to Islam since those kinds of tendencies do exist within the religion itself. But in any case, we do find Akbar indulging in some of the luxuries of imperial life, including the consumption of alcohol, for example. Basically, all emperors did drink alcohol um, in most of these great empires in the Islamic world also. Um, but with Akbar, in fact, we find an unusual abstaining from alcohol, more so than many other emperors. Indeed, Akbar seems to have had a much more ascetic approach and moderate approach, a kind of pious approach, to how he wanted to be an emperor and what kind of an emperor he wanted to be. According to reports by Jesuit missionaries, Akbar very rarely drank any wine, and he also went long periods without drinking any wine at all. Um, the stories also tell of how Akbar would completely forbid the consumption of alcohol and opium in his courts and in wider society. Al-Kandahari writes that, quote, he is the king who escaped wine in obedience to God's command. These general attitudes and policies don't really fit with the conceived image of Akbar as a non-religious apostate. He furthermore was greatly interested and invested in spiritual matters and is said to have had many spiritual experiences himself. One such experience he had when he was out hunting and suddenly had a great insight which led him to become a vegetarian, or at least he tried to become a vegetarian. He would go long periods of time in his life without eating any meat uh, during his fasting, for example, but also otherwise. And he tells us that it was basically only due to social pressure that he didn't become a full vegetarian full time, so to say. Quote, if the scarf of social life were not on my shoulder, I would restrain myself from eating meat. And indeed, this vegetarianism was for religious and spiritual reasons. But we should be careful to, as many have, connect this immediately to the practices of Hinduism, for example, where vegetarianism is very common. Because indeed, vegetarianism has been a common practice in Sufism as well historically, and it's more likely that it comes from there. Indeed, Akbar himself refers to vegetarian food as Sufi food, which seems to confirm this connection. In other words, we find a greatly pious and moderate man, especially for someone of his status. 
It's telling that the emperors that followed him, like Jahangir and Shah Jahan, who are both often seen as more quote-unquote Islamic emperors, both had serious problems with alcoholism. Akbar was not that kind of emperor. Abul Fazl writes, quote, the world is, in the contemplation of the Shah and Shah's genius, an extremely contemptible affair. He does not deem it worthy of his complete attention and always keeps his soul attached to the importance of God. Neither is he the kind of emperor who would be remembered for his cruelty or intolerance. Indeed, as I mentioned in the beginning, Akbar showed an unusual level of respect to the different cultural and religious traditions of India, or of this empire generally. Several of his wives were Hindus, and he appointed many Hindu officials into his court, into his empire. They had high status positions in his court. Akbar generally had an approach and policy of accepting a religious plurality in his empire, a strategy that proves, as it often does, to be incredibly successful. One story tells of how the emperor interacted with the young Sikh community. The third guru of the Sikhs, Guru Amar Das, had established the practice of Lankar in Gondival. The communal kitchen where food was offered and shared among people of different castes and religions. And when some of the local Hindus called for Akbar in concern about this practice, he visited the Sikh community, but was instead so pleased and impressed by the practice of Langar that he offered lavish gifts to them. Akbar also, like many of his successors on the throne, would also monetarily support Hindu temples across the empire. It is also said that he abolished the so-called jizya tax, that non-Muslims were usually forced to pay um, for being a well, for being non-Muslims. These are just a few examples to show the attitude that Akbar became so famous for. He was also actively interested and engaged in conversing and debating with them on religious and spiritual matters. Indeed, in the last decades of his life, Akbar instigated a movement of religious discussion and interreligious dialogue that he himself would actively partake in. Being so involved and personally invested in spiritual matters, it is said that Akbar would spend long nights with Shishti masters discussing different spiritual questions with them. After about a year of this, Akbar wanted to take these discussions to a broader level and decided to create a forum where opposing ideas could be discussed and debated formally. It is for these reasons that in 1576 he formed what he called the Ibadat Khana, the house of worship in connection to the shrine of a Sufi master of the Shishti order. In the house of worship, he would invite people from different religious traditions, first from different Muslim denominations, so Sunni, Shia, etc., but later also from all kinds of religions that existed in the region and had them engage in debates and discussions. Quote, According to Abul Fazl, Akbar invited Sufis, philosophers, orators, jurists, Sunnis, Shi'is, Brahmins, Jains, Christians of various denominations, Jews, Zoroastrians, and still others to the beautiful detached building of the House of Worship, and made a rigorous examination of the principles of all their faiths and creeds. The astute sovereign praised whatever was good in any of these faiths and creeds. Akbar personally took part in these discussions. It seems like he wanted to find the different commonalities and truths that hid within the different religious traditions to find a kind of hidden universal truth within them all that transcended sectarian divisions. This all sounds very nice, of course, but the meetings themselves 
usually ended in complete disasters, people starting to insult each other and, and fights erupting uh, during these uh, meetings. So eventually these meetings were disbanded, but by the end of this phase, Akbar had come to some rather interesting conclusions. According to sources, it seems that he had used these discussions as the basis to create a syncretistic religious movement of his own, which has become known as Deen Ilahi, or the Divine Religion. It wasn't called this at the time by Akbar himself, though, but rather it was called Tawheed Ilahi, or Divine Monotheism. Now, this is where telling the story in an accurate way becomes a little difficult. There are many different ideas about what this divine religion was supposed to be. Some interpreted to have been an entirely new religion created by Akbar that tried to syncretize and bring together uh, aspects of all these different religions in the region to create a new universalist religion. But others disagree and instead interpret this Din Ilahi to be rather an extension of his already existing Sufi-oriented Islamic faith. Akbar is and was accused of having left Islam completely as being an apostate, basically, and many historians today accept this as basic fact, even though all those claims basically come from Akbar's enemies. Certainly, we cannot ignore the very obvious fact that Akbar was interested in and influenced by different religious traditions like Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, and Christianity. Many of the critical accounts tell of how Akbar would adopt various practices from these religions, like that he would worship the sun, that he forbade the slaughtering of cows, and that he would shave the crown of his head because the Buddhists taught that the soul escaped from that part of the body. But these writers also kind of expose themselves when they start to claim things that are well, highly unlikely, like for example the claim that Akbar supposedly forbade all Islamic practice in the empire or that he banned names like Muhammad and Ahmad. As already pointed out, all these accounts come from critical authors like Al-Badayuni, who were very openly hostile towards the emperor, and for that reason, of course, they should be taken with a huge grain of salt. We find no claims of apostasy from Akbar himself, or from his closest grand vizier, Abul Fazl, who instead writes, quote, a set of evil-thinking, shameless ones imagined that the Prince of Horizons regarded the Muslim religion with disfavor. The sole evidence which those wrong-headed ones, whose understanding was rusted, had for this was that the wise sovereign, out of his tolerant disposition and general benevolence, extensive overshadowing, received all classes of mankind with affection. Especially did he search for evidence in religious matters from the sages of every religion and ascetics of all faiths. The Deen Ilahi only seems clearly like a new religion if we don't take into account the Sufi form of Islam that Akbar was so attached to, which contains many of the teachings and ideas that he presented, albeit in a less radical form, of course. In another presentation, quote, The Deen Ilahi was not a new religion. It was a Sufi order with its own formula in which all the principles enunciated are to be found in the Quran and the practices of the contemporary Sufi orders. The deen was no religion outside of Islam, nor cut out from it. An ilahan never regarded it as a separate religion. An ilahan was often as orthodox as a mullah. Furthermore, quote, The practices which he asked an ilahan to follow were mostly Islamic in origin, or had precedence in the actions of one of the renowned Islamic monarchs or saints. So we have very clearly differing accounts. 
critical and hostile authors like Al-Badayuni presents the Deen Ilahi as an entirely new religion and thus paints Akbar as an apostate who had left Islam to create this new religion, uh, while others instead see the Deen Ilahi as an extension of his already existing Islamic faith. Now, one of the most interesting and controversial aspects of the Deen Ilahi is Akbar's own role in this religious movement. There are accounts that the formula, there is no god but God, and Akbar is his representative, was uttered by those close to him in the court. Indeed, some interpretations claim that Akbar went even further than this by actually claiming divinity for himself. This is most famously represented by the fact that he had seals printed with the phrase Allahu Akbar and asked his subjects to preface letters and writings with this phrase. So what's so strange about this, you may ask? After all, Allahu Akbar is a very common proclamation in Islam, which means God is greater or God is great. The thing is, the phrase Allahu Akbar can also mean God is Akbar. This has led many to speculate and assume that this was an expression of Akbar's view of himself as being actually divine, and that the religion, if it was a religion of the Deen Ilahi, had Akbar himself as its god, so to say. While others rather say that no, the fact that it says Allahu Akbar is meant in the conventional sense that it has always been used by Muslims, and I'll let you guys decide what you where you stand on this particular question. And that's the thing about Akbar. We don't really know for sure what was going on with him. Um, don't let my skeptical attitude fool you. There is quite a possibility that he did consider himself to have left the religion of Islam. There are sources that point in this direction. But personally, I find myself more in the other camp, who thinks we can't really trust the hostile account and that automatically pointing to outside non-Islamic influences as soon as someone has open, tolerant, and somewhat unusual views kind of paints Islam as a static monolith that is only narrowly represented by the stricter conceived quote-unquote orthodoxy. As I talked about earlier, we find many of Akbar's ideas already in Sufism, which Akbar was so devoted to. Indeed, engagement with other religions and an open attitude to discussion across religious lines was not exactly unusual in India by the time of Akbar. Many other Muslim scholars and leaders had also expressed similar ideas. The Shishti masters mentioned earlier became known for their generosity and kindness to all peoples. And there were many others at this time who discussed the relationship between Islam and Hinduism, for example. Not only were Hindus often seen as among the people of the book, the Ahl al-Kitab, but also that it contains some of the same monotheistic teachings as Islam, albeit having been corrupted much like religions like Christianity and Judaism. Characters like Krishna and Rama were seen as prophets of God rather than as deities like for the Hindus. For example, the Sufi author Abdurrahman al-Shishti represents one of these people who, in his book Mira'at al-Haqqa'iq, read, translated, and interpreted the Bhagavad Gita as essentially an expression of Tawheed, or monotheism, especially as understood by the Sufis. Krishna here becomes a prophet, much like Jesus or Muhammad, who taught the same message of divine unity. The great-grandson of Akbar himself, Prince Darashiku, had similar tendencies and all of this will be discussed properly in a future episode. 
Even Akbar's bitter enemy, Al-Badayuni, is said to have translated the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, so what I'm saying is that these kinds of ideas were in the air at the time, and Akbar is, as all human beings, a product of his time and place. But Akbar, of course, can appear especially radical in some ways, especially if it is true that he adopted many practices from these various religions. But what I'm saying is that we shouldn't immediately discard his ideas as non-Islamic and thereby let his enemies, a particular group, define what Islam is. From a neutral standpoint, Akbar and his tolerance and openness represents Islam just as much as Ahmed Sirhindi or Al-Badayuni did. At least if we operate from the assumption that he didn't leave the religion, which of course is still a very much a real possibility. Because regardless of your opinion about his religious affiliations or the question of whether or not he started a new religion, you can't deny that Akbar was a emperor who showed at least relatively an openness and respect to different cultural and religious groups in his empire. This attitude and policy often goes under the name of Sulli Kul, a phrase meaning universal peace or peace for all. From the contemporary accounts, we can clearly see that this was the approach to religion and rule that Akbar wanted to and did adopt as policy in his empire. Abul Fazl says, quote, The world lord exercises world sway on the principle of universal peace. Every sect can assert its doctrine without apprehension, and everyone can worship God after his own fashion. Akbar's own son and the future emperor, Jahangir, strengthens the argument, quote, He associated with the good of every race and creed and persuasion, and was gracious to all in accordance with their condition and understanding. This was different from the practice in other realms, for in Persia there was room for Shi'is only, and in Turkey, India, and Turan there were room for Sunnis only. This policy of sulli kul, or peace for all, was an attempt to bring harmony and peace to a very diverse empire. Not without its political social reasons, of course, but very successful nonetheless. Akbar's rule of Mughal lands is seen as one of the most prosperous in history. Jalal ad-Din Akbar passed away on October 3rd, 1605, after suddenly falling very ill. Many think that he may have been poisoned, perhaps even by his own son, but even after his death, Akbar's legacy and influence could not be escaped. He had established the Mughal Empire as one of the major civilizations of his day. His religious movement, the Deen Ilahi, didn't survive after his death, having only about 18 adherents, but his general attitude of tolerance uh, did continue with successive rulers that followed him. But perhaps the most direct successor to Akbar in terms of his spiritual and intellectual curiosity and religious dialogue was his great-grandson, a prince who never got the chance to become emperor himself, Darashuku. A devoted Sufi as well as heir apparent to Shah Jahan, Darashuko stood firmly within the bounds of the religion of Islam while simultaneously exploring and being in dialogue with Hinduism as another expression of monotheism and represents a similar open attitude to his great-grandfather. And that is Darashuko, which we will focus on in the next video in this series. In the end, Akbar is mostly not remembered for his military victories. He sought to bring harmony and stability to his vast empire through the policy of Sulli Kul, universal peace, and was arguably very successful. In the end, perhaps it is best to let the man himself have the final word. Quote, 
It is my duty to be in good understanding with all men. If they walk in the way of God's will, interference with them would be in itself reprehensible, and if otherwise, they are under the malady of ignorance and deserve my compassion. I'll see you next time. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.